Hello, and welcome to the Reorient Podcast, the show about international issues and international people with an Asian twist. My name is Jesse Friedlander. And I'm Madhavi Peters, also known as The Tropicalist. Dr. Elliot Cohen, thank you very much for joining the Reorient Podcast. It's a real um, honor and pleasure to have you uh, be a guest. It's great to be with you, Jesse. <laughs> so I'm not going to go through your full uh, bio just for the sake of time. And also, we're going to have that on our website. So what I think I'll do is just sort of uh, jump into it. I think it's fair to say that you've had a long storied career in academia, in policymaking, and particularly as in relation to military history and issues around the role of, of military and international affairs. Is that a would you say that's a fair statement? Yeah, no, that's it's a complimentary way of putting it. But yeah, <laughs> I'm, I'm uh, primarily a uh, professor, but I have periodically gone into government, sometimes on a part-time basis, sometimes on a full-time basis. And, and, and that has been my focus. So you're right. That's right. I'm sure more than full-time. And I should, uh, I guess, for full disclosure, I'm as an alumnus of SICE, and I I'm serve on the advisory board, and I've come to know, uh, know you and uh, hold you in high regard and consider you as a, as a friend. Uh, so uh, again, I appreciate your, your joining, and uh, it's, it's nice to have kind of a more, I guess, formal discussion with you because it's usually a little less formal. Or I'm usually in a, in a larger group. So again, yeah. thank you for the time. Um, so my first, I guess, question for you is, so what attracted you? You know, I know that you were a reservist in the U.S. Army and you you taught at the Army War College and you've spent really, a, as I said, a career looking at military issues. So I guess my first question for you is what what's the motivation or traction that brought you into this this field? So um, I think the some of it uh, stemmed from growing up in uh, Boston, uh, where I had a, a just a keen fascination with colonial history, a lot of which and Revolutionary War history, which really seized me and uh, didn't let go. So actually, if you look about half of my academic output is really uh, qualifies as military history, including some very much from that period, the colonial and uh, early federal period. But also I was growing up, uh, you have to remember, uh, during the 60s and, uh, and 70s, and there were all kinds of very dramatic things going on, whether I, I remember as a child, the uh, Cuban Missile Crisis, I remember right. the uh, Six-Day War, and of course, Vietnam uh, hung over everything. I was, wasn't draft age, although I was, I think, the last cohort where they actually had a, a lottery. There were just zero calls. So issues of war and peace really were very much in the air in the contemporary world, as well as the historical world that I, I like to explore. So, uh, yeah, I, I can see sort of the global context, the national context, and then you had a, um, a personal interest in, into it, and it's kept you in there. So um, I guess just sort of going through, um, I'm going to have to try to push quickly. There's so many topics we could discuss, but my first uh, question for you is sort of the idea of the post-World War II um, rules-based international order. And would you say that the international order is buttressed by um, sort of military and defense at a national level? Or how else do you see the importance of the role of military and defense in a context of a, of a global order? Well, the, the, you know, the, the world's a complicated place and the nature of global order or disorder has many aspects and features to it. But, but for sure, the, the world order that was created after World War II has been powerfully shaped uh, 
by military forces and facts. Let's start with the biggest one. Uh, it was become, because of the outcome of World War II that the United States and the Soviet Union ended up towering really over the rest of the planet. Uh, old, the older great powers, uh, not just Germany, Japan, but in a different way, Britain and France were also quite badly smashed up by that war. And then they, if you look at the post-war period, that uneasy peace, which we call the Cold War, was profoundly shaped by the nuclear standoff, uh, by the Russian presence in the heart of Europe, by the American presence in the heart of Europe. And these were largely military presences. Uh, you know, people now forget we had something on the order of 300,000 American soldiers stationed in Europe at one point during the, the Cold War. So military facts are always there. Now, there are a lot of other facts that are there too. And it's a, it's a mistake to focus on one to the exclusion of all else. But for sure, the military dimension is a critical one. Okay. So I'm wondering, because at least in the post-World War II context, the United States has been involved in many of the military conflicts and also creating the, the structure and the backbone of sort of a military system. Can you generalize about the role of military in the international system outside of the U.S.? And it's, you know, very sort of, you could say, which accounts for the bulk of a lot of that. Uh, how would you describe sort of the role of the military and policy and, and the international system ex-United States? Uh, well, it, it's a little bit hard to separate some of those things out. You know, one of the most important features of the international system has been America's alliance system, which has, all of which has a very important military uh, component. But I think the thing is what, what you find is that a lot of the you know, regional international systems that one sees in places like the Middle East, for example, are, again, powerfully shaped by military facts. You know, a very good example of that, of course, is the Arab-Israeli conflict and the the kind of the shifting power balances in the Middle East. I don't think you can understand any of the the politics of the Middle East uh, to include very much at the moment without looking at what what's the nature of the military dimension. Now, the one thing I would I would say that's changed, particularly in the last several decades, is the, the nature of that military power has evolved. Military power is always evolving. And whereas in World War II, you would mainly be denominating it in terms of things like aircraft carriers or battleships or armored divisions, bomber wings, and stuff like that, uh, today it's a lot more subtle. And uh, that's one of the challenges, I think, in assessing the contemporary international system you know, we've we've seen smaller conflicts in places like Azerbaijan or in Libya, where uh, major states, uh, Turkey being a very good example, are using military power, but they're using it in ways that we really haven't seen before, and which are very effective. But we just don't, we can't measure them in the way that we used to be able to. And I guess the uh, addendum to that is clearly the increasing role of cyber in terms of as a, uh, a weapon of, of military. And we hear frequently about cyber attacks, and they could be from state or quasi-state or non-state actors. But we also hear a lot about the potential threats uh, in, a, in a sort of a conflict situation that could target things like power grids or financial systems. So clearly the, there's 
added dimensions to the potential of a, of a military conflict between countries. That's right. I think uh, cyber is a very good example because it's a very blurry uh, form of power. You know, at one end, it's more of what we think of as the exercise of political influence, say, through social media. It's a tool of sabotage in uh, uh, some cases, which isn't quite what we usually think of in the use of force. And then there are ways in which it's actually quite similar to, you know, much more conventional kinds of, of military powers. If you're taking down somebody's power grid, it doesn't make a whole lot of difference whether you're doing it with some malware that's been inserted into a plant or you're doing it with the kinds of munitions that the United States Air Force used in Iraq in 1991. So something that's clearly on a lot of people's minds now is the rise of China. And uh, it's now the world's second largest economy and, and uh, presumably the second largest uh, military. And it's having, you know, clearly an impact on the region and even in the United States. So how do you include uh, China in the framework of how you're looking at the world? The biggest difference between well, there are many differences between the Cold War world and uh, the world we're in now. Um, in both cases, the United States was in a, a strategic competition with another superpower. The difference here is that China has a dynamic economy, which the Soviet Union did not, an economy which has at least the potential to become larger than that of the United States and which many people believe will. That's something that is just fundamentally different than we've dealt with before. There's no question that China's put a lot of effort into developing a first-rate military, and in many ways, they have succeeded. And what's, I think, striking to me are really two things. First, the, the nature of Chinese rhetoric, which indicates a willingness to be quite pugnacious and to certainly to threaten the use of military force, but also to push it out there. And at the same time, What's um, a consensus that didn't really exist before in the United States uh, about the fact of a strategic competition between the United States and China? You know, even 10 years ago, I don't think you would have gotten the kind of consensus between Democrats and Republicans that now exists. And given that we're in such a polarized and divisive time here in the States, that really is quite remarkable. I would say probably another distinction is the economies of United States and China. United States its allies, allies in China, is much more integrated, or much more yes. integrated than, the, say, the Soviet Union when there was a communist bloc that traded within itself. So, it's a very it seems like a much more complicated relationship uh, when you have a sort of a strategic threats, but you also have some sort of a, a mutual reliance and intertwining of of your uh, economies. It is, and I think it, it will remain that way, although it is striking to me that on both sides, you're seeing uh, initiatives to not quite decouple, because you can't decouple these two powerful economies, but to reduce their mutual dependence. And I think that will actually have some success uh, on both sides. I mean, the, the initiative is coming both from China and from the United States. And so I think it'll, the, the two economies will be less integrated than they once were. But nonetheless, the fact remains that they will be mutually dependent at some level. The, we should take only limited comfort from that, uh, unfortunately, because right. if you were to look at, say, 
the uh, European economies before World War One, they were pretty well integrated. Yeah. In fact, you had a lot of intermarriage, right, of families and, and other ties. So um, uh, do you think there's something we, you know, we were told for a long time that um, democracies didn't fight with these wars with each other. There was something about the system of, of democracies that that kept peace. And China has a different system, I, I guess it's called a, some form of socialism. And um, so is there sort of inherent incompatibility uh, when you have different political systems to coexist peacefully? I think so. You know, democracies do periodically fight one another. It's not the case that they don't, but it's much rarer than between democracies and authoritarian systems like China's. Um, Unfortunately, I think there is a built-in source of conflict there because to the extent that the United States espouses its values they will be at odds with those of the Chinese government, not necessarily the Chinese people, but but the Chinese government. And issues like Hong Kong, issues like the Uyghurs will be ones in which the United States will weigh in. And the American model, depending as it does on the free flow of information and open political discourse and all the rest, will be and is innately threatening. I think Americans sometimes don't fully appreciate that. A a successful open system is by and large pretty attractive to people. Uh, Not completely, but but largely so, and is usually seen as some kind of threat. You know, um, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, thinking about sort of the end of the Cold War period, that quote-unquote end of history, there was an idea, I think that was very popular, that democracies and sort of more or less free economies and capitalism provided a lot of benefits to citizens. They could make the most of their lives. They could um, enjoy, they could express themselves. They could perhaps participate in government and and enjoy a higher standard of living. And so I think there was an idea as as China was opening up that uh, China would want to embrace a lot of what the the West and these places have to offer. Do you think that from sort of a Washington perspective that there was sort of a misunderstanding about to the extent that China would want to embrace Western models of democracy and, and capitalism? Or was that sort of that risk known all along and we're just you know, it was, there's almost a predictability in terms of how things would unfold. I, I think there was more optimism than was warranted on the one hand, although I would also say that, uh, it, you know, it's very important that, um, and this is me as an historian speaking, that, that people not forget the role of contingency and the rise and fall of particular leaders. You know, it's clear from everything we know about uh, the crackdown at Tiananmen there were really serious divisions within the Chinese leadership about what to do. There were very serious divisions about how much liberalization should occur. And, you know, the Chinese government took its, uh, took a course, which was a much more repressive course. I I am not sure that that was completely inevitable. Uh, And, you know, I don't believe any, any particular group of people are, you know, kind of destined to have one form of government or the other. There's a lot of choice that goes into it. So I I wouldn't dismiss the contingent element of it. But I do think you're right that there was a lot of optimism that was unwarranted that this would just happen kind of magically in a way. Thank you for listening. 
We hope you enjoyed this portion of the podcast. To access the entire podcast and more high-quality analysis on Asia, please visit our website, reorientpodcast.com. That's one word, all lower caps, reorientpodcast.com.